Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Uh, this November, uh, my wife Anna and I will have been married for 12 years. Yeah. Quite the accomplishment, especially for her, uh, being married to me for 12 years. Uh, But 12 years this November, I can still uh, remember vividly the day that we got married. It was a November day in Camden, South Carolina, which is a town I can just about guarantee none of you have been to before. Um, It was a shockingly warm November day. Uh, We had all of our groomsmen uh, wear sweaters in the ceremony, uh, which we thought was a safe bet for a November wedding. It was not. It was 82 degrees in Camden, South Carolina that day. I think all of my groomsmen had to go back to the hotel and take showers in between pictures and the ceremony because they were just sweating profusely. Um, But I, I hear that a lot of people get nervous on their wedding day. I don't remember being nervous on my wedding day, uh, aside from one moment when our wedding planner forgot to go get Anna and bring her to the banquet hall for her walk down the aisle. Then I was a little bit nervous. I thought she had gone runaway bride on me for a moment. Um, I was nervous then, but but I wasn't nervous otherwise. Uh, The day that I was pretty nervous was about a month later, after we were married, when I went and did Christmas with my wife's family for the very first time. That day was just a little bit anxiety-inducing for me. So we had a pretty short dating relationship and engagement. So the first Christmas that we actually spent together was once we were already married. So I was already locked in, no turning back at that point. Um, and, and personally, I, I think participating in another family's traditions like Christmas is is always a bit weird, uh, regardless of the family and how normal they are. I think my wife's family, all things considered, is pretty normal. Uh, But still, just entering into another family's traditions can be a little bit weird as an outsider. There are traditions and rituals and dynamics that you just don't know about going into it. So one of Anna's family traditions at Christmas is that when the youngest generation opens their Christmas presents, they do it all at once, it's chaotic, and then they ball up the Christmas wrapping paper and they throw it full speed across the room at other people in the room. So you can imagine my surprise when I'm just sitting there quietly opening my Christmas present and I get beamed in the side of the head by a balled up piece of Christmas wrapping paper. But, but that's also just part of being an outsider at another family's tradition. So I can remember that first Christmas with Anna as we were in the car driving away. I remember debriefing it all with her, like asking her questions like, okay, who, who is that person and how are they related to everybody and are they related to everybody and who are their kids and where do they live and, and why is that person like that? Why do they say the things that they say typically and can I get an ice pack for my head and like all these different things that you ask after celebrating Christmas with your spouse. 
There was just so much on that first Christmas that I did not know, I did not understand about her family's traditions. Now, 12 years in, I actually love my wife's family's traditions. I I think they're great, head trauma and all, right? (laughs) But that first Christmas, it was all completely foreign to me. And, and me to it, right? I, I truly had no idea what was playing out in front of me, at least at first. Now, I mention all of that this morning because I, I think that's kind of how all of us are going to feel at some point today as we read about a tradition, the Passover, that is probably foreign to most of us. We're gonna read about a group of Jewish disciples celebrating the Passover meal together, which wasn't just a tradition for their families, it was a tradition for all Jewish families. Which means that in it, there there are gonna be traditions and rituals and dynamics at play that you and I, unless we're Jewish, aren't gonna be super familiar with as we read through it. Matthew and how he records this story just sort of assumes that his audience is familiar with all of this, that we know the context and the background about all of it. But since most of us don't today, we're going to need to work overtime to wrap our minds around it. Does that make sense? Because to understand what's happening in this story, in Matthew 26, you need to know at least something of the story and the tradition that's behind it. Without an understanding of the Passover meal in general, we're gonna have a hard time understanding the meaning and significance of this particular Passover between Jesus and his disciples. So portions of today's teaching, specifically the last half or so of the teaching, might feel a tad technical to us, but it's all being done with the intention of helping us track with the story that we get in the Gospel of Matthew and understanding what's behind it. So in a way, we are all about to be like me that very first Christmas with my wife's family, asking ourselves, what in the world just happened exactly? And that's okay, because before we're done, I think we can make sense of it all together. You guys up for that this morning? You awake? Yes. Mostly? Love it. So follow along with me in Matthew 26. We're going to start reading in verse 17. So on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to go make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Verse 18, Jesus replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. And there, that's him referring to his impending death. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed and prepared the Passover. So the Passover, as we mentioned last Sunday, marked a time in Israel's history where God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And because it marked such a momentous, such a pivotal moment in their nation's history, God told them that they should celebrate the Passover every single year. And in order to do that, there were preparations that had to be made for the meal. There were multiple courses and dishes that were a part of this meal. And so the disciples needed to prepare a room, needed to secure a room where them and Jesus could participate in it together. Now, keep in mind that Jesus and the disciples are all flying a bit under the radar at the moment because a group of chief priests are actively looking for Jesus in order to kill him. 
So, so Jesus has to be a tad covert about his instructions about where they should go eat the Passover. Hence the spy movie-like instructions that he gives the disciples about finding a certain man and saying that his appointed time is near, asking to use a room in his house. But they do all of that. They secure the room. They make preparations. And then verse 20, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. Now, it's probably worth noting that the Passover meal was not typically a very somber occasion, at least overall. There, there were somber moments to it, to be sure, and this particular Passover is going to turn somber in a moment because of what Jesus says next in the passage. But the Passover in general was not a somber occasion. So, so I imagine in this setting, in Matthew 26, I imagine the disciples all sort of filing into the room. They're, they're catching up with each other. They're laughing, they're talking, they're shooting the breeze. Uh, somebody is giving Peter a hard time about the time that Jesus had to call him Satan because you know if you're one of the other disciples, there's no way you're letting him live that one down, right? So they're poking fun at him a little bit. There's laughter around the table. They're just sort of sitting around the table enjoying being together. All this stuff is happening as they're eating. They're doing what you would expect a group of guys to do who have known each other for three years and been through a whole lot together to do. They're just enjoying being together over a meal. But all of that is about to take a turn. Verse 21. While they were eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. So at this point, the conversation quickly dissipates around the table the laughter screeches to a halt. All of a sudden, it's like you can hear a pin drop in this particular room. One of the disciples probably speaks up and says, I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus, it, it sounds like you just said that one of us is going to betray you. But that can't be what he said, right? I mean, these are the guys who have committed over the past three years to follow Jesus with their entire lives. They've, they've left everything in order to do it. Most of them have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king that the scriptures talked about, and he has called them, this group of 12 guys, to be his closest disciples, his followers, not to mention his closest friends. So, so how in the world could he somehow now think that one of them is going to turn on him? That doesn't make sense. There's simply no way that that could be true. Verse 22, so they were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. So, so the weight of what Jesus has just said is sitting heavy on the disciples' shoulders. They begin to say to Jesus one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Jesus. There's no way you're talking about me. There's no way you think that I'm going to betray you. I mean, who would do something like what you're saying after all? Then verse 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, what we just read in the NIV is probably not the best translation of what Jesus actually said there. So the way that the NIV reads, it almost makes it sound like Jesus just identified to everyone precisely who the betrayer is. It's not really what he says, though. In the original language, the, the emphasis is not so much on a particular person, it's on the relational nature of the betrayal. So, so a better translation there would be something like, indeed, one of the people who dips his hand into the 
bowl with me will betray me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's just reiterating that someone very close to him, in fact, someone at this very table at this moment with him is going to turn against him in the near future. Now that was significant because in the ancient world, who you shared a meal with was a very big deal. It was a little more significant than it is to us today. Back then, you only ate with people that you were really, really relationally close with. Your, your family, your closest of friends. So the idea that someone that Jesus is eating this meal with will betray him is likely very troubling for the disciples. Very destabilizing thing for them to hear. It sends them all into a bit of a tailspin, asking frantically, who among us would do something like what Jesus just said? But they likely still don't know who Jesus is referring to. Verse 24. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Verse 25, then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said so. So Jesus seems to confirm here to Judas that it is in fact him, which is obviously not a surprise to Judas. It's just a surprise that Jesus knows about it. Now again, Jesus probably doesn't say this part within earshot of the other disciples. John's account of the same story seems to indicate that at least the majority of the disciples at this point in the story still don't know who Jesus' betrayer is. They're all still wondering who would do the thing that Jesus is talking about. Which I don't know about you, but makes me wonder why. Why doesn't Jesus just out Judas at this point in the story? If, if Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, and Judas now knows that Jesus knows, why not disclose that information to the rest of the disciples? Why is Jesus choosing to be so secretive about that information? I would guess there are at least two reasons for it. One logistical reason and one pastoral reason. So logistically, I think Jesus knows that if he gave his disciples specifics on who is going to betray him, there is a good chance that at least some of them would try to stop it from happening. Peter literally tries to do that later in this chapter. We're going to read the story in a couple weeks where Peter chops off a guy's ear because he's trying to stop a group of people from arresting Jesus. Peter has already tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross at least once so far in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus knows that his disciples, at least some of them, are fiercely loyal to him. So if they were to find out which person in this room is going to betray him, there's a real good chance they would insert themselves into the situation to try and stop it. Which could be why Jesus emphasizes in verse 24 that all of this, quote, will go just as it is written. He wants the disciples to realize it is not their job to stop any of this from happening to him. But I think there's also a pastoral reason that Jesus doesn't tell them who the betrayer is. And I think this is really important to understanding the purpose of this passage in Matthew's gospel. Pastorally, I think Jesus doesn't tell them because at least in a sense, he could be talking about any of them. 
Here's why I say that. Verse 31 of the same chapter, Jesus says this. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's a quote from the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Jesus says that in reality, all of the disciples will fall away. All of them will fail. And he's right, literally all of them do. Biblically and historically speaking, every single one of the disciples will turn on Jesus in the hours surrounding his death. They'll all fail him in some sort of way. If not out of malice and deceit like Judas does, simply out of fear and and insecurity and uncertainty about the situation taking place in front of them. They'll deny knowing Jesus. They'll fall asleep on Jesus in his greatest hour of need instead of staying awake and keeping watch for him in the garden. They'll scatter and run and hide when Jesus is arrested and killed. The most honest answer to the question, surely you don't mean me, Lord, is that Jesus could mean any of them. Sure, he specifically has in mind Judas and what he says, But I think Jesus holds that revelation back from the disciples because he wants each of them to earnestly ask themselves the question, could it be me? Am I capable of doing something like this? He wants them all to ask that question. And I think by extension, we could probably also ask ourselves the same thing. Am I capable of something like this? Because the most honest answer to who would do something like this is that any of us could, right? I I could, you could, any one of us given the right circumstances, the right opportunity, the right motivations, the right amount of sin taking root in our hearts for the right amount of time, any one of us could do something like what Judas does in the story. Remember our teaching from last week. We are all making decisions constantly that functionally answer the question, how much is Jesus worth to me? What would I trade Jesus for personally? What would I bail on Jesus for if it meant that I had something to gain in return? Judas turns on one of his closest friends and the savior of the world for 30 measly pieces of silver, four months wages. But the uncomfortable truth is that you and I sometimes do it for far less than that. The trade that Judas makes in the story, baffling as it may seem to us, is a trade that any of us are capable of making at any point in our lives. Constantly, you and I are making exchanges that are not far off from the one that Judas makes. When we bend the truth to get ahead at work, That is, in essence, trading Jesus for career advancement. When we decide that God's design for sex is unnecessarily restrictive, and so we go ahead and sleep with the person that we're dating, that is trading Jesus for sexual gratification. When we decide that we would rather hold on to bitterness and resentment in our heart instead of forgiving someone who has sinned against us, that is trading Jesus for a relational grudge. The answer to who would do something like this is that all of us could. All of us do. We are the ones asking Jesus, surely you don't mean me. And what we should be thinking is it absolutely could be me. It is me a lot of the time. 
And until we understand that about ourselves, we are not going to understand the profound, radical nature of the gospel message. Because the gospel operates on the assumption that all of us, every single one of us, in one way or another, have made that trade. We do make that trade. But that simultaneously, Jesus has decided to do something about it which I believe is what the rest of this passage is about. So pick it back up with me in verse 26 of the passage. While they were eating, it says, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, for this is my body. So here is where we take a deep dive into the tradition of the Passover. Are you guys ready? So at a traditional Passover meal, there would be a loaf of unleavened bread, much like this one. The bread was unleavened because when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt in the story, he did it swiftly and suddenly, so suddenly in fact, that they did not even have time to wait for their bread to rise. So every year at Passover, from that point on, Israelite families would eat unleavened bread. As they sat around the table, the head of the household would take the bread, he would give thanks for it, and then he would say, this bread is the bread of affliction, which our forefathers ate when they were in Egypt. Whoever is hungry, let him take and eat. He would then break the bread, he would distribute it to everyone at the table, and they would all eat from it together. Now, eating this bread was a way of remembering the suffering that God's people endured when they were in Egypt, but it was also a way of remembering that God delivered them out of that suffering. It, it was a way of internalizing, quite literally, the story of their ancestors. They were grounding themselves in that story and reminding themselves of God's presence and God's power in that story. They were, quite literally, nourishing themselves with the story of God going to roll all the way down. Sorry, I just wanted to pause and allow that to happen. It's part of the thing with a sloped floor is you drop something and it just rolls all the way forward. So good catch. Whoever did that was awesome. So when they, when they ate from this bread that was called the bread of affliction, it, it was them quite literally nourishing themselves with the story of God that they were all familiar with from their history. But here at this Passover meal with Jesus and the disciples, Jesus seems to take things in a very different direction with what he says. He takes that same bread that his people had eaten every single year for hundreds of years as the bread of affliction, and instead he says, this bread is my body. Take and eat. Now that's a very weird and off-putting thing to say. I know we're familiar with it if we grew up in church. That is a very weird thing to hear for the first time if you're the disciples sitting around this table. Partly because it sure does sound a lot like cannibalism, right? It's a very odd thing for Jesus to say. But more significantly, it's an odd thing for Jesus to say because that wasn't what he was supposed to say. 
He was supposed to say, this is the bread of affliction, which our forefathers ate in Egypt. What he says here in Matthew 26 would have made it seem to the disciples like Jesus, who was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, was so familiar with them from early on in his childhood, like he had all of a sudden forgotten what the Passover was about. Like he had somehow forgotten about how it all worked and what he was supposed to say and what the traditions were. But Jesus had not forgotten that at all. He was simply using an old story, a story they were all familiar with, to tell a new story. Or maybe to say it a little more accurately, to show them that he was the final chapter of the story they had been remembering all along. The unleavened bread on the table that night was the bread of affliction. And it was Jesus' body. Jesus, in a matter of hours from this story, is going to have his flesh broken open by whips, his head pierced by thorns, his wrists impaled by nails. A staff would be used as a baseball bat repeatedly against his head. He would be slapped, struck, punched over and over again such that he didn't even know who was hitting him. If that's not affliction, I don't know what is. So, so this bread on the table that night with Jesus and the disciples was still very, very much the bread of affliction. It was just now also the bread of Jesus' affliction. His story was Israel's story. It is Israel's story. Continuing in verse 27, then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So at traditional Passover meals, there was also wine. The idea here, centrally, was freedom. In the minds of ancient Israelites, only free people drank wine. So during a traditional Passover meal, they would drink from four different cups of wine that all represented four different aspects of that freedom that God had granted them. The head of the family would take a cup like this one. He would remind people of what that cup represented in the story of the Exodus, and then they would all drink from that cup. But once again, here... Jesus takes it in a very unexpected direction. He actually says about the cup of wine, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Which would have been just as confusing and just as unsettling as what he said about the bread a moment ago. But again, here, Jesus was not ignorant or dismissive of what the Passover wine represented. He's trying to say that his story is the continuation, it's the culmination of that same story. In his own words, the wine represented a covenant. Now, chances are you and I are not crazy familiar with the word covenant. Probably sounds a little bit intense to us. A covenant was essentially a sort of binding agreement, but it usually carried a good bit more weight than just a legal contract like you and I would sign today. So covenants would happen in the ancient world, for instance, between the kings of two neighboring nations. 
So, so they would agree between each other not to invade one another's country, not to strike up war against each other, and the penalty for violating that covenant was generally pretty severe. So it, so it wasn't uncommon for one king to say to the other as a part of the covenant, essentially, if I violate the covenant and I invade your country, you can kill me. And if you violate the covenant and you invade my country, then, then what, how did I say it the first time? Then I can kill you. There it is. Good job. Y'all were paying closer attention than I was to my words. Well done. So that was the deal, right? The, the stakes were pretty high in a covenant. The, the penalties were often pretty severe. That's how a covenant worked. Now, stay with me here. In the Old Testament, God made several covenants with his people. Those covenants were often guaranteed with the blood of an animal. So, so when God's people failed to live up to the terms of the covenant with him, which was quite often, if you've never read the Old Testament, it happened quite a bit, when they would violate the terms of the covenant, they would offer an animal as a sacrifice to God to sort of make amends for what happened. That animal sacrifice, that shedding of blood, it was thought secured their forgiveness from God. But that's what makes Jesus' words here in Matthew 26 so very interesting. Because he just told his disciples that this cup of wine is, quote, his blood of the covenant. Not the blood of an animal, his own blood. Jesus seems to be saying here that this covenant he is making with his disciples, with his people, is an altogether different type of covenant. In this covenant, Jesus says, essentially, if I fail to live up to the covenant, you can kill me. And he says, if you fail to live up to the covenant, I'll kill me. If I fail, I die, Jesus says. But if you fail, I die in your place. This covenant, Jesus says, is going to be guaranteed by his blood and his blood alone, his life and his life alone. So this is actually a one-way covenant. It just happens to have two parties in it. The, the point of this covenant, it would seem, is that we won't live up to it, but that Jesus will. Now, I want you to plug that information, once you know it, back into our story. So, so plug it into what's happening in the passage, both historically and situationally. So historically, the Passover was literally named after a time that God passed over any Israelite who had the blood of a lamb painted over the door to their house. The blood of the lamb made them safe, in other words. Here, Jesus seems to be saying that anyone in possession of his blood is safe. He is the Passover lamb, as we mentioned last Sunday. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what this covenant is going to be about. Jesus wants his disciples to realize that about him. But also, I want you to plug that information into the story situationally. Remember what we started off talking about this morning. Jesus has just told his disciples that one of them sitting at the table is going to betray him in a significant sort of way. One of them is going to radically fail Jesus, which has then prompted all of them to ask the question, is it me? Am I capable of doing that? Could I do something like what he's saying? To which the answer is yes. Yes, they are all capable of doing something like this. They are all going to fall away in some way, shape, or form, as are we. But here, 
before any of that gets said or done, Jesus wants the disciples to realize something about their relationship with him. He wants them to be very, very clear on how all of this is going to work. Here's what he wants them to know. This covenant with God is not based on their ability not to fail. It's not based on their ability to be full of faith and absent of mistakes. It's not based on their moral or relational tenacity. It's not based on their strength or their courage or their giftedness. The strength of this covenant is not based on any of those things. It is based on the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. It's not based on their faithfulness to him. It's based on his faithfulness and his faithfulness alone. So Jesus looks up at this table full of disciples who are all about to fail him in significant sorts of ways, in various sorts of ways, and he says to them, this bread is my body. This cup is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. One of the other gospels actually records it like this. Jesus says, this is my body and my blood which is broken and poured out for you, my disciples. Jesus is saying, all of you are about to fail. But don't worry, I won't. As Paul writes to Timothy later in the New Testament, he says, even if we are faithless, he, Jesus, is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's the good news in the Last Supper. That's, that's their hope, and that's our hope, and that's every other person on planet Earth's hope, that even if we are faithless, God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. And Jesus backs that up with what he says next, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus tells these disciples just hours before they all fall away, before they all fail, that one day, they're going to eat and drink around the table with Jesus again. In the new heavens and the new earth, that they will be with him again one day. And that he is actually waiting until that day to celebrate with them again. Okay, stop for just a second. What a profound sort of promise that is. Jesus, knowing that these disciples will fail him, gives them the assurance of knowing that he will also restore them. That they will be unified around the table yet again, which again, was no small thing in the ancient Near East. This is why we say a couple of things around our church often, or at least we try to say them often. Neither of these things are original to me. They're things that much smarter people than me said, but we try to say them a lot around our church. First, we say that you cannot out the grace of God. You cannot out the grace of God. It's not possible. Now, you can choose to turn down the grace of God. You can say, I don't want it, but you cannot sin so much that you are outside of his reach. The second thing that we say all of the time is that all of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross. 
All of your sins were future sins. And what we mean by that is that nothing you will ever do will surprise God. There's nothing you can do or fail to do where God will go, wow, I really wish I would have known they were gonna screw up in that way before I sent my son to die for them. That really might have changed my mind. That's not a thing. All of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross. Nothing you're going to do or fail to do is going to catch him off guard or make him change his mind about you. He knew you were gonna fail, he knew you were gonna falter, and he chose to go and do what he did anyway in your place. Don't you see, that's what's happening when Jesus tells them in one breath around this table that they are going to fail him and then the next breath that he's going to be with them again one day around the table. He knows that they will fail. And he's saying he's already taken care of it. He's trying to show them that there is reconciliation after division. There is hope after failure. There is restoration after ruin. And listen, that is precisely because this whole thing does not hinge on them or their strength. Just like it doesn't hinge on us and our strength. It hinges on Jesus and his. So Jesus says to his disciples, we're gonna be together again in the new heavens and the new earth. I've already made sure of it. And with that assurance given, we get verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will eventually be arrested. They will all be, be together again one day. So for now, they sing and they hope for that day together. So I don't know where all of this hits you this morning. I'll tell you briefly where it hits me. A couple weeks ago, I was talking with the other guys in my life group about the lies that we often believe. It's part of our formation series, talking about the lies that we often believe. And I told them, the guys in my life group, that I think for me personally, one of the biggest lies that I am prone to believe goes something like this. I don't need God's help to grow because I can grow on my own. I often functionally believe that I don't need to confess sin because I'll just stop sinning. Never mind that that's never ever worked before in the history of humanity. But that's what I functionally believe. I don't need to ask for prayer and ask for help and ask for accountability because I can just cut it just fine on my own. I'll just try harder next time. Again, never has worked before, but I'm convinced it'll work next time. And, and yes, I do realize how utterly wrong and anti-biblical all of that stuff sounds when I say it out loud. I get that. But that's kind of the nature of lies, isn't it? Sometimes what sounds very, very silly to say out loud sounds very, very convincing in the dark. But I think that is the lie that the enemy most consistently uses against me. I'm an Enneagram one, if you know what that is. Yeah, a few, few ones in the room. It's funny, we don't usually get very excited, but a few Enneagram ones in the room, uh, which means, personally, that I am continually striving to improve things and reform things and make things a little bit better. It's exhausting. If you've never been to Enneagram One, it's exhausting, but to me, it's exhilarating. So that's how Enneagram Ones work. And I think a lot of times, because that's my inclination in most areas of life, 
if I'm not careful, I will apply that mentality to my own heart, my own discipleship to Jesus. If I'm not careful, I will begin to operate as if I am all I need in order to grow and mature. That, that my effort is the only resource required for me to mature into who God wants me to be. I don't instinctively ask for help from other people because to me, asking for help feels like weakness. And I don't want to admit weakness, so I just keep pretending that I need no help. But here's what I, here's what I miss when I choose to operate that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine, a verse that I'm sure many of us have heard before. But he, he being God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Friends, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. That's how it works. The Christian life has never been about our power, our ability, our moral fortitude, our sufficiency. It's never been about our faithfulness. It's always been about his. So I, I tell you all of that about my own journey this morning for two reasons. One, so that you can remind me of that when I need to hear it, which is just about 100% of the time, but I'll never ask for help, so you have to say it anyway. But two, because I would imagine there is at least a little bit of that stubborn mentality in all of us, Enneagram one or not. I would bet that a lot of us have a propensity in us towards trusting in ourselves more instinctively than we trust in God. Trusting in our own faithfulness rather than realizing and relying on his faithfulness. And I'd love for us to take this morning to get that switched back around in our minds and hearts. And as a means to do exactly that, Jesus leaves us this meal. The meal that we read about today. It's had a lot of different names through the years, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, Communion, the Eucharist, but whatever you choose to call it, it is meant to be a powerful recurring practice in the life of a follower of Jesus. Because this meal, just like the Passover meal that it's based off of, is a way to literally ingest and internalize the story of God into your being. It's a way to nourish your soul on the one true story of the world. So we take the bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus on the cross, and we internalize it. We remember that his body was broken for us. And then we take the cup, which is the new covenant in his blood, and we internalize it. We remember that his blood was spilled for us. This meal is absolutely central to our discipleship to Jesus. That's part of why we do it every single Sunday as we get together. First Corinthians tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the death of Jesus until he returns. This meal is also communal. I think sometimes we miss that in a radically individualistic society like ours. 
There's a reason that we wait until we're all together on Sunday mornings to participate in this meal. And there's a reason that at our church, you'll look around during, while we're singing and you'll see life groups and entire groups of people come and take the bread and the cup together. Because participating in this meal actually reminds us that we are a family that we exist in relationship to each other. And it reminds us that whatever our differences are when it comes to background and ethnicity and convictions and preferences or anything else, that the thing we are all unified around is the body and blood of Jesus. That that unity overrides any potential disunity that there may be and provides a means to deal with it. And finally, this meal is hopeful. As we participate in this meal, we look forward to the day that we will enjoy this meal again with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns to make all things new. And we, as we wait, we ask that he would enable his kingdom to come, his will to be done through us as it is in heaven. And all of that starts by realizing that it's always been about his strength and not ours. It's always been about his faithfulness and not ours. That's what this meal is about. Which is part of why, just like the disciples, as we take in this meal, we sing. We celebrate who God is. We sing to celebrate the faithfulness of God. We sing to celebrate that though we are often faithless, he remains faithful. So this morning, I want to invite all of you to do that with us. The communion tables will be open across this room. Our prayer team will be available at the front of the stage and the front balcony exits. If you've got something you need to process or pray through or ask for help in, those people would love to walk through that stuff with you. They'd love to connect you with someone if that's helpful afterwards. But you can find them throughout this room as well. But what we're going to do is take this opportunity to sing and celebrate and remember the faithfulness of Jesus together this morning through this meal. Sound good? Let me pray for us.